Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am thrilled to have with me today a really exciting guest. I have Dr. Juanita Henao, who is the chief of OB anesthesia at the University of Oklahoma School of Medicine. She's a really great person and really knowledgeable on the topic. And our plan, which hopefully we will carry out over the next few months, is to do several topics within the world of OB anesthesia. Uh, I know there's a lot of folks out there really interested in this. And today we're going to start by talking about postpartum hemorrhage. This is a highly tested topic and obviously a very significant clinical topic, something that's really important to have a grip on if you ever take care of uh, postpartum patients. And uh, so I'm really excited to have Dr. Hanau here. Uh, Juanita, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jed. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to just start uh, by asking you to tell us a little bit about you and how you uh, got where you are and how you got interested in OB anesthesia. There's a lot of folks out there who are in training and, you know, are always interested to hear how your thought process played out as you were trying to decide what specialty to go into yourself. Sure. So a little bit about myself. I'm from Colombia, South America. Uh, I did. I went to medical school in Bogota, and then I decided to move to the United States uh, to do my, uh, you know, anesthesia residency training. I went to uh, University of Miami Jackson Memorial Hospital, uh, where I completed my anesthesia residency, and I decided to stay there for a fellowship in obstetric anesthesia. Uh, I think the reason why I picked OB is because coming from a third world country, I realized that a lot of the women didn't have access to like, uh, you know, labor analgesia. And um, it just fascinated me to see that here I was able to provide that kind of relief for the patients. Um, I feel that in OB, you get a lot of appreciation from our patients, which is not a common thing, unfortunately, in our field. You uh, see the patient's, you know, face when you relieve their pain and they, um, they're always grateful for you. So that really motivated me. And on the other hand, I am very committed to women's health care in general. Uh, as a woman myself, I think it's so important to have, you know, advocates for women's health care. So um, I think that's, that's why. Yeah, it's such important uh, and, and great reason. So thanks for sharing that. Um, well, let's dive in. Our first topic that we're going to talk about today uh, is postpartum hemorrhage. And so let's start really basically. Just tell me, what do we mean when we say postpartum hemorrhage? Is there a specific definition? Uh, and what are kind of, what's the kind of you know, um, etiology around it? How common is it? What do we want to know specifically about this entity? Okay. So postpartum hemorrhage is excessive bleeding that occurs within the first 24 hours after birth, but it can also occur uh, up to 12 weeks postpartum. 
Traditionally, we used to define it as more than 500 ml of blood loss after vaginal delivery and more than 1,000 ml after cesarean delivery. But in 2017, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists defined it as more than 1,000 ml of blood after birth or within 24 hours of birth, regardless of the mode of delivery. Okay. So that's the specific definition, interestingly, that changed just a couple of years ago. So forget about, there's no more distinction between C-section and, and uh, vaginal delivery. It's just any birth, more than 1,000, within 24 hours. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, as far as the incidence, so it varies widely throughout different regions of the world, uh, with poor countries having the highest incidence. Uh, it's actually the um, maternal mortality um, it's the highest cost of maternal mortality in poor countries. In the United States, it's estimated to be around 3%. 3% mortality associated with postpartum hemorrhage? No, no, no. It's uh, like it's the incidence of postpartum hemorrhage. Oh, the gotcha. mortality okay. in the United States is around 10 to 12%, which is very significant as well. Yeah, wow. So 3% incidence of postpartum hemorrhage, and of those who, who have a postpartum hemorrhage, 10 to 12% mortality. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that is significant. And then that you, you said is even more significant. Those numbers are even larger in other countries. Yes. In poor countries, uh, maternal mortality accounts for like 34% of maternal deaths, which is very high. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So this is a major issue. Um, yes. All right. And now you mentioned that this can happen up to 12 weeks postpartum, though that is not part of the definition. So do is that do we still kind of think of that as postpartum hemorrhage or, you know, unofficially? How does that work? Yes, we can still think about postpartum hemorrhage, for example, where uh, we have like retained products of consumption that are causing bleeding even um, at this late, late stage. So we do consider it a postpartum hemorrhage at this point, uh, but it's not the most common cause, if that answers your question. Yeah, no, perfect. Thank you. So let's talk about causes. What what causes? Why do some women have postpartum hemorrhage and, and some don't? What causes it? All right. So the most common cause of postpartum hemorrhage is uterine adenine. Uh, let's remember that uterine adenine is a failure of the uterus to contract after delivery of the neonate. And this contributes to around 70 to 80% of the cases of postpartum hemorrhage. Other causes uh, are retained products of conception, like we discussed uh, briefly, lacerations, uh, of the uterus of the cervix, tears, um, you know, vaginal tears, uh, uterine rupture, abnormal placentation, meaning placenta previa, placenta creta, placental abruption, uh, coagulopathy. Uh, those are mas- basically the main causes. Okay. And so these are also some, we've kind of also got some risk factors here, right? So women who have known placenta previa or placenta accreta, which you can sometimes, you know, find that out prepartum with, uh, uh, or yeah, before birth, right? While they're pregnant by doing an ultrasound, et cetera, um, would be at risk for postpartum hemorrhage. Um, are there other risk factors that you might know beforehand that you say this is a high risk patient? Yes. So, uh, like I said, uterine adenine is the most common cause. So, some of the risk factors associated with uterine adenine are uh, delivery via cesarean delivery, induced labor, um, augmented labor with oxytocin, multiple gestations, macrosomic babies, uh, polyhydramnios, hyperity, and prolonged labor. Uh, also, chorioamnionitis can cause an increased risk of uterine adenine and therefore uh, postpartum hemorrhage. 
Great. All right. Now, what is interesting to me is augmentation with Pitocin. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people would think, oh, you know, gee, don't we use Pitocin to treat uterine acne? Why is it also a risk factor? Now, you know, you tell me, is it because, uh, you know, if you use it for augmentation of labor, you kind of are, you know, using it too soon and now it doesn't work as well to treat acne? Yeah. So what happens with Pitocin is that, um, the receptors for pitocin can get desensitized, uh, you know, with higher doses of pitocin. So if you have a patient that is being augmented and she's getting high doses of pitocin for these reasons, the receptors will get desensitized. And then when you give more oxytocin, you're not going to achieve the same effect. This is called tachyphylaxis in pharmacology and pitocin has this property. So that's why. Gotcha. All right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, now, uh, I'm going to ask you, I remember uh, getting a talk once, I think when I was a resident, um, uh, saying that we really drastically overdose Pitocin um, in general. So, uh, and I'm not going to risk in a while, but I think that what we used to do when I was a resident is we'd put something like 20 units in a liter bag and just as soon as the baby was out, like for a C-section, we would just run the whole thing in. And the talk I heard was saying that that's, you know, a, a, just an enormous overdose that it all, A, can lead to nausea and vomiting. B, again, like you said, can really desensitize. Um, and then if we need it later, it's not going to be there. Uh, and so that the doses, if we're going to use it for just prophylaxis, should be much lower. Is that true? Yeah, so there's a lot of controversy about this topic and there's a lack of consensus amongst anesthesiologists regarding the optimal oxytocin dose regimen. Um, those doses that you mentioned, like 30 units of pitocin in a liter of, uh, you know, saline or LR are still appropriate. What's more important uh, to remember is that oxytocin is rapidly metabolized and cleared. Its half-life is only like around six minutes. So if you give it very fast, you're basically giving like a bolus of the medication, correct? And you're increasing the incidence of like side effects, like nausea, vomit, hypotension. So it's more important to titrate it slowly, in my opinion. Um, you may still need doses around 30 to 40 units of pitocin. However, more than 40 units, uh, I mean diluted pitocin, right? More than 40 units, uh, you're not going to achieve any effect because, again, there's receptor desensitization and attenuation. So um, more than 40 units are not going to achieve any effect. Another okay. thing that's important to remember, I'm sorry, is no, um, that uh, oxytocin has structural similarities to vasopressin and very high doses of oxytocin can cause, you know, water intoxication with hyponatremia and seizures in severe cases. So, yes, it's important to always keep in mind that you don't want to overdose this medication. All right. That's really interesting. So, you want to be careful because obviously high doses of a vasopressin-like substance, or in other words, an ADH-like substance is going to act like antidiuretic hormone is going to cause water retention, which can lead to hyponatremia. And like you said, severe hyponatremia can even lead to seizures. So, Correct. Um, so that's good to know too. All right. So it sounds like you think that, you know, you kind of use the doses that you need and they may be high doses, but as long as you're titrating slowly, you're going to be better off than kind of bolusing in a whole uh, 20 units at once. Exactly. Okay. 
So let's say now that we have, we talked about risk factors. So you've got a woman who is pregnant and she's got a variety of risk factors. You're worried about postpartum hemorrhage. Is there anything we can do prophylactically to try to prevent uh, postpartum hemorrhage? I mean, one thing we do obviously that we just talked about in C-sections is often as soon as the baby's out, we will start running Pitocin. Uh, I assume that's one thing we do to try to prevent postpartum hemorrhage. Uh, Are there others? Well, I think the most important thing is prevention. I'm a very uh, big advocate for prevention. So early recognition of risk factors. Uh, when we identify patients at risk, we can prepare better to treat hemorrhage should it occur. So this means establishing large warp IV access, uh, having fluid warmers in the operating rooms, uh, making sure that you have... Um, you know, blood ordered, uh, type and, type and screen and type and cross for high risk patients. And, um, that being said, as far as pharmacologic agents are concerned, oxytocin remains the first line drug for prophylaxis and treatment of uterine adony. And there are other medications that I think all our residents need to be, um, you know, aware of. And if you want, we can talk about them as well. Yeah, that's great. So it sounds like, you know, what you said, preparation is key. So it's not, we don't have a lot of kind of, you know, medications we give to try to prevent it other than oxytocin. No, unfortunately, we don't. Yeah. So prevention and recognition of risk factors are key. And actually, uh, now that we're talking about that, the ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, they actually recommend that hospitals have protocols in place to help coordinate the responsive management of postpartum hemorrhage. And these include, you know, team responses, accurate estimation of blood loss, recognition of early signs of hypovolemic shock, uh, things like that, that help improve morbidity and mortality. Yeah, that sounds that exactly. So, you know, once it obviously having to scramble to get blood once it happens, as opposed to having the blood ready beforehand, right? Big difference. Exactly. Great. All right. Well, so as you said, let's talk about now, since we, we can only do so much to prepare, uh, or maybe we didn't have any risk factors, so we, we didn't know it was going to happen. Now we have a woman who's having a postpartum hemorrhage. What can we do to treat it? Um, okay. So other than, you know, establishing more IV access and administering IV fluids, medications that we can use uh, are... Um, Methylergonavin is one of the second-line therapies for uh, uterine adenine. The mechanism of action of methylergonavin is unknown, but is thought to be um, due to alpha-adrenergic receptor stimulation. So that's one of the medications that we use. The other medication that is available is um, prostaglandin F2-alpha, which is um, known as carboprost or hemabate. And this medication is a prostaglandin that increases the, uh, uh, you know, production of oxytocin and therefore uh, causes uterine contraction. So this medication, unfortunately, has both of these medications, unfortunately, have some side effects that are important to recognize. So for methergine, uh, because like I said before, it causes, you know, alpha adrenergic receptor stimulation, uh, it can cause hypertension. So it cannot be administered to, you know, patients with severe preeclampsia. And uh, prostaglandin F2-alpha causes a reactive airway disease. So it's contraindicated in patients with asthma. It has other side effects like nausea, vomit, fever, and diarrhea, which, like, you know, all prostaglandins can, um, can cause. There's other prostaglandin that is sometimes administered, which is misoprostol, which is prostaglandin E1, 
Uh, unfortunately, misoprostol is not as effective as these other two medications in controlling, um, you know, uterine adenine and decreasing postpartum hemorrhage. Okay, so this is great. And I really think this is so high yield for testing. I mean, I have seen uh, so many times these, these medications brought up. Sometimes it's a scenario, postpartum hemorrhage, and they'll give you some patient information like it's a patient with severe asthma or it's a patient with gestational hypertension. And they'll say, you know, you've tried, they're bleeding, you've tried Pitocin, that's not working. Uh, you know, what's your next agent? And so they want you to know, well, I'm not going to give, in this patient with, you know, known bronchospasm, I'm not going to give, uh, you know, hemabate. So uh, I'm going to give, you know, um, the uh, methogen, or they'll say, oh, you know, this patient has severe hypertension. I'm not going to give methogen. I'll give the uh, hemabate instead. Now, sometimes they'll give you both of those contraindications, and I think they're then pushing you toward mesoprostol. Um, but, you know, as you say, that's only if you really can't give the other two, right? Yeah, correct. Okay. So those are really key to know. Um, first line is Pitocin. And then uh, your, your three second line choices are uh, methogen, uh, prostaglandin F2-alpha, which is uh, hemabate, and then mesoprostol. Now, I, I have seen on tests where they may not give you the name hemabate or carboprost. They may just say prostaglandin F2-alpha. And so I do think it's also important for folks to know that the name, the actual generic name, because sometimes that's the answer choice on the test you have to know. Correct. Uh, the exams are moving towards using, you know, um, the actual name of the medication instead of the commercial names. Um, so I think it's important for residents to understand uh, the difference in the prostaglandins that can be used. So like I said, um, hemorrhoidocarboprost is prostaglandin F2-alpha and misoprostol is prostaglandin E1. Okay. Now, I know sometimes when we have a patient, let's say under general anesthesia for a C-section, which obviously is not our first choice, but if that's how we've ended up, uh, you know, using inhaled anesthetic, can actually cause uterine uh, dilation, right? Can cause uterine um, relaxation, mm -hmm. and relaxation. So, if you have a patient under general anesthesia, the baby's out, and now they're having postpartum hemorrhage, would you change your anesthetic if there, if you have some some inhaled anesthetic on? Yes, I would. Uh, it's important to remember that all volatile agents except nitrous oxide um, cause uterine relaxation and can cause uterine adenine. So I would decrease my volatile agent that I would, that, um, let's say, sevoforin, uh, and then I will supplement the anesthetic with nitrous oxide and, uh, you know, propofol boluses if appropriate. Uh, but definitely, yes, I will decrease my concentration of volatile anesthetic. Okay. So that's another important thing. Is there anything else? So we've got the agents we can use. We think about turning down our volatile if, we, if we're using that. Anything else uh, in terms of treatment? Um, obviously, you're going to be calling for blood and replacing blood as needed, all that, but sure. um, anything else? Yes. Yeah, so um, as far as medications, that's pretty much it. And the rest of the measurements are more like, you know, for the obstetricians to perform, but um, we can talk about them because they're also uh, highly tested. Yeah. So things that can they can do are uh, placement of intrauterine balloon tamponade, which is basically like a like a Foley catheter that has a balloon at the end and they inflate that balloon. Uh, and the purpose is that they trying to achieve is like to create like a tamponade and help the uterus contract that way. The balloon remains inside the uterus until either the patient like, you know, pops it out herself or um, the obstetrician removes it when they, you know, 
consider it's appropriate to do so. Other things that they can do are compression sutures. Uh, the most common type of compression sutures are called the billing sutures, which are like, you know, like the name says, they're uh, sutures around the uterus that they tie, um, tie up really tight. <laughs> uh, and the purpose of this is to also help with the uter- help the uterus contract and decrease the bleeding. Mm-hmm. If none of these measures um, work, then the next step uh, the next step will be surgical ligation of the uterine arteries. And uh, if this um, still fails to you know decrease the hemorrhage and the adenine, then the last resource will be a hysterectomy. Okay, and that uh, obviously is a very morbid procedure for a lot of reasons, uh, including the fact that if this is a patient who you know desires future pregnancies, that would that would not be possible. So, you know, I know we really try to avoid that, but ultimately that may be, that may be the only option. Yeah, that may be the only option. Uh, yes, like you said, it's very morbid. Um, it's not the same to perform a hysterectomy on like a 70-year-old lady with an atrophic uterus than to perform a, a hysterectomy on a pregnant patient or like an immediately postpartum patient because the uterus is going to be very, you know, enlarged and the vessels around the uterus are going to be engorged. And so it's very, um, it's very morbid. And actually when they reach that point in the surgery where they consider that they have to move towards that route, oftentimes they actually call uh, the gynecology oncology colleagues that are used to, you know, deal with enlarged tumors and enlarged uterus, they often call them to assist uh, during the surgery because it can be very, you know, complicated surgery. Right. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, well, great. All right. So this is all really, as you said, highly testable, even though some of this is, is not stuff we do, but just kind of knowing about it. Um, all right. Let me ask you, you know, when we think about uh, kind of where we're going. Is there anything exciting kind of on the horizon, new agents that you know of that are in development? Or do you think anything's going to look different in 20 years and how we treat and prevent postpartum hemorrhage? So unfortunately, there's not much for preventive agents. Uh, I did an extensive search and I couldn't find anything that was like in the horizon. The only other medication that it's been used in uh, countries like the UK is another uh, synthetic analog of oxytocin that's called carbatosin which is, um, you know, synthetic oxytocin that has um, half-life of 40 minutes compared to 10, six, 6 to 10 minutes for the oxytocin that we use. So that being said, this medication can be administered as a single dose without the need of an infusion. Um, however, it also has, you know, the same side effects of hypotension, tachycardia, nausea that uh, the oxytocin that we used um, have. So it's not uh, ideal. Uh, but it's something that, uh, you know, and other countries are starting to use with promising results. Uh, unfortunately, there's no, you know, um, any other prophylactic agents that I know of. Uh, something that's maybe interesting to mention is um, as far as treatment uh, of the, you know, postpartum hemorrhage once uh, it occurred is the use of tranexamic acid. So there was a, yeah, there was an interesting trial that's called a woman trial that is uh, one of the the biggest randomized controlled double blind trials that have been done in the world of obstetric anesthesia that studied the use of tranexamic acid in the prevention of maternal mortality associated with um, postpartum hemorrhage. And this study actually showed that uh, tranexamic acid may decrease the maternal mortality associated with uh, PPH. And they recommend it's used within three hours of the onset of the hemorrhage. 
So I think that's something interesting. And a lot of hospitals are actually moving to add tranexamic acid to their uh, postpartum hemorrhage protocol. Oh, very cool. All right. Well, so that'll be interesting to follow too. Um, you know, and I do wonder, uh, I've never heard of this being used for this indication, but, you know, there's increasing interest in, in for traumatic cardiac arrest and for, you know, kind of pelvic hemorrhage that can't be controlled. Or uh, I recently saw something similar with a kind of uh, perithoracic aortic injury um, uh, in this technique called Reboa, which is a endovascular balloon occl- occlusion of the aorta where, you know, the, uh, well, whoever's doing it could be the vascular surgeons or you know, interventional cardiologist, whoever's doing it will feed a, a wire up through the femoral artery into the, um, uh, descent, into the descending aorta or even the thoracic aorta and blow up a balloon to essentially completely occlude it. So it's a kind of an endovascular uh, cross clamp of the aorta. I wonder if we'll ever see that for kind of, you know, kind of right before you move to the hysterectomy, you could, of course, completely stop blood flow to the uterus and then, uh, you know, maybe get control of it that way. I, I don't know. Have you ever heard of that being used for that purpose? Well, now that you mentioned that, I have heard about embolization of uterine arteries. Um, if you have time, you know, to bring the patient to an uh, interventional radiology suite, uh, then that's an alternative before moving to hysterectomy. The problem with this is that, um, you know, sometimes you don't have time. Your, your patient's not stable enough. Right to be transported. But that being said, that can actually be one of the preventive measurements. And it's actually used in certain institutions uh, in high-risk patients. So let's say patients with placenta cuida, which are like very, you know, they have a very significant risk of bleeding. A lot of institutions are uh, using embolization of the uterine arteries before proceeding with the cesarean hysterectomy mm. in an attempt to decrease the, you know, the blood loss. So I think that's something that um, is going to, you know, be interesting in the future. And I definitely think it's something that uh, if, you know, the uh, interventional radiologist or cardiothoracic surgeons can perform in the operating room on a patient that already has, you know, postpartum hemorrhage, that's something that could potentially help decrease the risk of hysterectomies and, you know, overall mortality. Yeah, totally. That's really interesting. Almost like sometimes we'll embolize a tumor before trying to take the tumor out. It'd be the mm-hmm. same idea. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, fantastic. This has been great. Super high yield. Juanita, thank you so much. Let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations for the audience. Do you have anything you would recommend that people check out? Yes. So, um, you know, I'm from Colombia and Colombia, unfortunately, has a really bad reputation, especially with all these Netflix shows, narcos and things like that. So I actually want to recommend an episode of Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown. Uh, I think it's season one, episode three. This episode talks about like another aspect of, of Colombia. It's not just about food. It's also about, you know, the beautiful landscapes that you can find in Colombia and the beautiful people. So I really think it's a good, um, it's a beautiful thing to watch. So, uh, you know, residents and med students that are listening to this podcast can have a different idea of what, um, where I'm from. Yeah, that's awesome. I did not know about that, but we'll check it out. I have always heard wonderful things. I mean, I've seen Narcos and I, I understand the, that that leads to a bad reputation, much as the movie, uh, I mean, the TV show, The Wire gives Baltimore a bad reputation. But, um, <laughs> you know, I just, I've always heard wonderful things about Colombia. I lived in Costa Rica for a year and the folks there would always speak very high. They would love to go to Colombia for vacations and always speak about 
uh, how beautiful it was and wonderful the people were and delicious the food and everything. So I've never been, but would really love to go. Yeah, um, you should. And I also love Anthony Bourdain and I was really sad when he, you know, when he passed away. So I think, um, I think, uh, it's a really interesting show and you should watch it. I will definitely check it out. Um, well, that's great. And my recommendation is, so recently folks may know there was a, uh, Jeopardy, uh, kind of special show that was the greatest of all time. So they took the three, uh, people who for in the past, you know, decades have won the most money or the most consecutive shows on Jeopardy. So Ken Jennings is one of the ones and he's one of the, the more famous ones who I think won the longest, had the longest streak ever of consecutive wins on Jeopardy. And then there were two other uh, contestants and they brought them together for a special show competing against each other. And it was like, I think the best of three. So there are three days worth of competitions to see who could win the the best. And it was pretty high stakes. The winner took home a million dollars. And I think the the runners up took home maybe 250,000 or something. So it was a, a pretty big uh, pot and uh, really interesting. And there's all kinds of stuff that's been done around this. So if you look online, you can see all the questions that they got wrong and see if you would get any of them right. You can see obviously some of the questions they got right, the final Jeopardy questions, et cetera. And so uh, it, it's a lot of fun to check out if you if you like Jeopardy, um, which is always kind of a fun a part of the culture. So I recommend uh, you can go and, and actually watch the shows or you can check out some of the accompanying media. It's a lot of fun. That sounds really fun. Thanks for that recommendation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, th- thank you so much, Juanita, for coming on the show. I look forward to talking more and picking some other topics uh, and having you back on. Thank you so much for having me. All right. That was great. Hopefully you learned as much as I did. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, ACRAC.com. You can leave a comment and others can learn from what you have to say. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Walpaw and we are at ACRAC Podcast. And of course, we have a Facebook group, which you can also check out. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. And if you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make a donation anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Thanks so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. Of course, a big thank you to Kimia Kashkuli, our intern. Another one to the dynamic duo of Dr. Brian Park and April Liu, who do the outlines for the episodes. They do a really nice job with those. And, of course, a thank you to Dr. Dennis Quo, who does the original ACRAC music. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Juanita Hanau, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yep, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious 
this extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.